A guitar tuner is a straightforward tool that can take on a lot of different shapes and sizes depending on who's using it and what they need it to do. You can have a tuning pedal, a standalone tuner, a headstock tuner, or my favorite, a human guitar tech who tunes your guitar so you don't have to. Strong Songs, a podcast about music. I'm your host, Kirk Hamilton, and I'm so glad that you joined me to talk about guitars tuned with pedals, guitars tuned with clip-ons, and sometimes guitars fancy enough to be tuned by a guitar tech offstage. The episode you're about to listen to is entirely listener-supported. You all make this thing possible, and that is a wonderful thing. I've put out more than 70 entirely free episodes of Strong Songs, and if you've enjoyed those episodes enough to think, you know, I'd actually pay for this, well, go to patreon.com slash strongsongs to find out how. On this episode, it's time for a widely requested and appropriately far-reaching topic, cover songs. What makes a cover song great, and why do some cover recordings eclipse the original? Well, it's time to take an existing artistic statement and restate it in our own voice. It's time for Strong Songs to talk strong covers. A cover song occupies an interesting creative space in the modern musical landscape. A cover can be seen as bold and transformative. Wow, I'd never expect this artist to cover that artist. It can also be seen as derivative and uninteresting to the point where cover bands are sometimes unfairly seen as somehow less than bands that play original music. Derivative art is just like all art in that it can be great or mediocre, it can be high or low, it can be commercial or profoundly non-commercial. It's art, and just like any art, it can it can be all kinds of different things. More than anything, a cover song appeals to our brain's penchant for comparison. We like to compare things. It's nice and tidy to, to look at two different versions of something created by two different artists and say, well, how are they similar and how are they different and what does that tell us about the musicians that recorded them? The most interesting covers to me are the transformative ones, the reinterpretations that honor the power of the original, but maybe paradoxically they honor it by fundamentally changing it. I have been chewing on this episode for years now. I've been keeping a document full of great covers, covers that I love. Some of them are iconic and well-known. Some of them are maybe less well-known. I've never quite known how I could fit the whole thing into a single episode of Strong Songs. But I think that in the end, the answer is that I can't. There's no way for me to hit every single cover that I'd like to hit in a single episode. But then I realized that, wait a minute, I don't have to do them all in a single episode. I can make as many cover-focused episodes of Strong Songs as I want, because if there's one thing that we can learn from the best covers, it's that people are happy to return to familiar ideas for a second, third, or fourth time. So we've got four fantastic covers to talk about in this episode. Let's get to it. Ladies, gentlemen, and everyone who's outside or in between, I give you Strong Covers, Volume 1. The first cover I want to talk about was a strong enough song to start with, but it was elevated as a cover not just thanks to a killer rearrangement and a tight performance from a great band, but also because the mere fact of the person who performed the cover significantly changed the meaning of the song. It's also one of the best, most famous covers ever recorded, so it feels fitting that we should start with it. I am talking, of course, about Aretha Franklin's cover of Otis Redding's Respect.
Aretha's version of Respect rules, obviously. It's an extremely famous recording. It's so commanding. Her performance is so powerful. The band is so groovy. It eventually became her signature song, and her performance commands that kind of signature respect from the very first note, the word what on an E-flat. Just bam, here we go. Is that the greatest E-flat ever recorded? It is not actually possible to say, but it might be. So as famous as Aretha's 1967 version is, it's actually really interesting to listen to Otis Redding's 1965 original, because if you get familiar with that original, you actually can come to appreciate just how many new ideas Franklin introduced to the tune. It's interesting, right? I mean, Otis Redding, no slouch of a performer. He sounds great. You can hear the song there, like the bones of it are there, the lyrics of it are there, but the arrangement is completely different. The horn parts are different. It's in a different key, and it just has such a different energy, even if you don't take into account the fact that it's being sung by a man instead of being sung by a woman. So first up, let's just look at some of those differences. Redding's original is in the key of D, Franklin's cover is down a step in the key of C. Respect is an interesting song in that it's built on the bones of the blues, but it kind of has its own distinct form. So if you remember, the blues are all built around one to four, to then five to four to one. Respect starts with a kind of a vamp from one or one to four, that's what Aretha does. And then for the verse, it goes straight from bouncing on the one chord to bouncing on the five chords. So the verse goes five for a minute, then four, and then back to five, and it kind of goes five to four, which is this unresolved feeling, and then when the singer sings for a little respect and says the title of the song, it resolves to one, and then it goes back to a vamp between one and four for what I guess is kind of the chorus, or at least the refrain. So the first thing you may be noticing is that while both bands are playing the same chord progression and both singers are singing the same lyrics, they're actually singing completely different melodies. As I mentioned, Redding was in the key of D, Franklin was down a step in the key of C, but that doesn't actually mean that Aretha Franklin was singing lower than Otis Redding. That would be weird because Aretha Franklin is famous for her huge range and Otis Redding can sing pretty high, but he can't sing as high as Aretha Franklin. So when Otis Redding sings What You Want at the very start of the verse, he's on an A7 chord, that's the five in the key of D, and he starts on an A right here. What you want, you got it. When Aretha Franklin sings What You Want, she's singing over a G7 chord in the key of C and she belts out a high E flat. That's that bluesy minor third in the key of C that gives it this nice propulsive bluesy sound right off the bat. So it's just a very different song right from the very beginning. She isn't even going to sing the same notes as Otis sang, so really anything goes right off the bat. That actually makes sense given the genesis of the song. Respect came to Redding via another musician, Speedo Sims, and Redding basically rewrote it, turned it into a different song, and took the songwriting credit on it. So it kind of has this shifting quality built into its DNA, and it makes sense that a new artist, in this case Aretha Franklin, would take it and fundamentally change it. 
Whenever I think about this intro and that opening line, I think of this really great essay by Wesley Morris in the New York Times. He wrote it upon Franklin's death in 2018. Officially, Morris wrote, Respect is a relationship song. That's how Otis Redding wrote it, but love wasn't what Aretha Franklin was interested in. The opening line is, What you want, baby, I got it. But her what is a punch in the face. So Ms. Franklin's rearrangement was about power. She had the right to be respected by some dude, perhaps by her country. Just a little bit. What did love have to do with that? Franklin put together this arrangement, and the farther you go into the recording, the clearer it is that she just added so many new ideas to what started as a pretty basic song. She also played piano and kind of demonstrated a lot of what she wanted, so her fingerprints are really all over this recording. For example, the backup vocals for this song, I would argue, are just about as iconic as Franklin's lead vocals. Those are sung by Franklin's sisters, Carolyn and Irma, and some of the hookiest parts of the tune happen in the backup vocals. I mean, right there on the chorus, just a little bit. That's a totally new addition from the Otis Redding original. Just two singers, it somehow sounds bigger. They're right just in thirds, just kind of a B flat, that flat seven on the C7, and then a G on the lower voice. Then they kind of just move in parallel with one another. Just a little bit, just a little bit. It's a killer sound, and those kind of close harmonies carry throughout the rest of the tune at other various points. There's a lot of really cool punctuation going on where Aretha will sing something, and the backup vocalists just feel like they're there kind of being like, yep, what she said, only they're doing it in really killer harmony with one another. That famous King Curtis tenor sax solo is a good opportunity to talk about the ensemble arrangement and the other musicians outside of Franklin and the backup singers. That's also remarkably different from the original recording. Now, both bands that recorded this song were really, really good. Redding's version was recorded with a bunch of Stax Records guys like Duck Dunn on bass, Steve Cropper on guitar, both of those guys. They were actually in the Blues Brothers band. They played on one of the two versions of Think that I talked about back in my year one episode about Aretha Franklin. Dunn and Cropper also achieved famous members of Booker T and the MGs, and what do you know, the rest of that band, keyboardist Booker T, Jones, and drummer Al Jackson Jr. were also on this session. Aretha's version was with Muscle Shoals players, Tommy Cogbill was playing bass, Roger Hawkins was playing drums, so it's kind of Stax versus Muscle Shoals, which are two really just legendary studio, uh, studio bands, uh, playing these two different versions. Everybody on these records can just totally groove, can totally play. So it all came down to how they were playing and the decisions that they were making in the studio while they were recording it. So for starters, check out the groove on Redding's version. So Redding's groove is what I've taken to calling pop forward on recent episodes. Here on Strong Songs, we talk about grooves in terms of thump, pop, and sizzle. The thump is the kick drum, the pop is the snare drum, and the sizzle is the hi-hat or some other kind of quick high-pitched subdivision. And when you put them together into a standard groove, you kind of got the pop on the two and four on the backbeat. If you do a pop forward groove, you put the pop onto all four beats. So the snare drum is hitting on all four beats, and suddenly you've got a very different kind of a groove. It's this steady, almost march-like thing that really pushes forwards. (laughs) 
Now, by way of contrast, check out how Aretha's band plays the same part of the song. The snare's just right there on two and four, and it's definitely groovier. Man, I love that turnaround when Hawkins flips the beat right there before the second verse. Check it out. Just textbook funk stuff when a drummer's just playing a steady backbeat. Boots, cats, boots, cat. And then you just syncopate the snare drum, the end of the bar. Boots, cats, boots, cat, boom. Mmm, very, very funky. The two rhythm sections just have very different objectives. Redding's band is driving forward at all costs. His recording has this sort of desperate intensity, and it works really well with his vocal style and with the way that he's delivering the song. Whereas Aretha's arrangement just has way more space. Every instrument has a lot more room to be expressive, in particular, her lead vocals. You just have so much more time to appreciate what she's saying. You have kind of the emotional space to let the message of the song, as sung by her, really land. There's more time to just sit with it and hear what she's saying to you. So you can hear it, right? That space lets her be so playful with her vocal delivery. She can really relish what she's doing, and you can hear that she is really relishing what she's doing. And I'll never know what it would have been like to hear this song as a woman in 1967, but I can kind of imagine, right? Like, here was this song that had already been a hit, it was sung by a man, and it was about how the young woman that he pays for and takes care of, she needs to give him respect when he comes home. And here's this woman singing the same song. She's got the biggest voice ever recorded. And she's singing, I'm about to give you all my money. And all I'm asking in return, honey, is to give me my propers when you get home. (laughs) I mean, you can see why this became a feminist anthem, can't you? short recording, such a tight arrangement, just two and a half minutes of music, but it packs in so many cool ideas from the downbeat, just from the very first second. There's that new chord progression on the bridge for that King Curtis sax solo, and then of course, at the end, there's the breakdown spelling lesson, which may be the most memorable and famous part of the entire song. did an episode on Aretha Franklin. You should go listen to that if you want to hear me enthuse even more about Aretha. But this arrangement kills. The horn sounds so great. It's one of the most inspired covers ever recorded, not just for how it was performed, but for who performed it. I could go on and on and on about respect. It's not just one of the best covers of all time. It's one of the best recordings, flat out. And maybe I'll do that one day. But for now, it is time to move on to another transformative cover of a classic 60s song. One that changed things in a much more, well, deconstructionist way. If you've never heard this recording before, can you tell what this is a cover of? It's a very famous classic rock song. Okay, what if we add some vocals? (laughs) 
Yes, Devo's 1978 cover of the Rolling Stones' Satisfaction stands as one of the weirdest and most distinct covers ever recorded. That flipped, head-scratching counting, those nervous, yelping vocals, that drone-like groove, it's a far cry from how the Rolling Stones recorded Satisfaction 13 years earlier in 1965. A group of artists who formed a band in Ohio in the 1970s, Devo had already made a name for themselves locally with their creative, artistic approach and their commitment to this kind of Dadaist, de-evolutionary performance art. Their name, Devo, comes from that reverence for de-evolution. This cover, which definitely de-evolves the song, was actually the thing that helped them go mainstream, thanks largely to the fact that they decided to spend their marketing budget making a music video for it, which was then all ready to go when a little network called MTV launched a few years later in 1981. I'm basing this all off of a great New Yorker article that I really recommend reading. It kind of chronicles the creation of this cover. The article was written by Ray Paget, who actually has a book out about cover recordings that I haven't read, but I bet it's pretty great because the New Yorker article is pretty great. So I'll link to both of those things in the show notes. The New Yorker article covers just how they kind of came up with it. Such a strange cover, like the, the way that they were jamming and sort of figured out this strange way to play the song. The fact that they had to sit in a studio with Mick Jagger and watch him listen to it so that they could get his sign off because it was just so strange that they wanted to get his sign off. And they did get his sign off. He actually really liked it. To Mick Jagger's credit, he could identify that this was a pretty cool cover. This de-evolutionary cover is a great example of yet another approach to covering an existing song. You take the original and you begin to prune, trimming and clipping down until what remains is this stripped down elemental version of the original. The Stones original is in the key of E, Devo covered down a step. Not everybody covers songs down a step, just the first two examples that we've picked have all been down a step, so just a total coincidence. The most striking thing about Devo's version is what's missing, and the first thing that you'll notice is missing is Keith Richards' guitar riff, which I know I call a lot of things iconic on this show, and I should probably retire that word because I overuse it, but if Keith Richards' guitar riff on Satisfaction isn't iconic, I don't know what is. The Stones' original is kind of built on top of that guitar riff. In addition to that, it's also built on Charlie Watts' drumming. He's playing another kind of pop-forward, quarter notes on the snare drum kind of a groove. Bop, 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 which Devo drummer Alan Myers was not interested in at all. He did a very different kind of a groove when they covered it. In that New Yorker article, Devo frontman Mark Mothersbaugh recalls how, when they were messing around with different ideas, Myers had come up with this broken drum groove, and Mothersbaugh originally sang lyrics to the Stones' Painted Black, but that didn't quite work. Then they, at some point they switched to Satisfaction, and that was when things locked into place. No. 
locked into place is a relative description, though. This groove is like it's locked in. Everybody is locked in and doing exactly what they mean to be doing. But it's also so weird and jumbly. It's that way on purpose, but it makes the listener feel constantly disoriented. I mean, listening to the vocals along with the rest of the band, it's kind of like listening to one person say something over in one ear, and then at the same time, someone it's else starts saying something Portland, totally Oregon different in your other ear. Recording and with those the air two conditioner things just on. keep going at the same time. It, if you can't, they never well, quite line up, and or so I literally it never melt. feels comfortable. What's so clever about this cover, and more broadly about this type of cover, is that it takes the listener's familiarity with the original and it uses it against them. Everyone's heard Satisfaction a million times. By 1978, it would have been around for so long. So we all kind of expect it to sound a certain way, to groove a certain way. We expect the melody to sit a certain way in the groove. And that opens the door for Devo to just relentlessly upend that expectation. Let's go a bit deeper on that groove and see what makes it tick, because it's such a cool groove. It's such a cool way to put this song together. So for starters, we've got Alan Myers' drum groove. It's what I call a broken groove, or I think of this as kind of broken, and I refer to it that way because it's kind of just a steady pattern of eighth notes. He's playing all the notes separately. He's keeping them separated, which makes it feel kind of aloof or antisocial. All the drums are off in their little their little areas, and they're never really playing at the same time. And that makes it feel a little bit removed and a little bit strange. It's much more unusual than a traditional kind of rock thing. bass and guitar are doing a similar sort of metronomic robotic thing. The guitar is playing this cool spaced out descending figure. It's sort of stacked fourths in D. Sounds like this on the guitar works really well because he uses open strings. And the bass is just kind of sliding between a D and a G in this similarly odd rhythmically displaced way. Those are the three main elements of the groove. You start with the drums with that broken beat on the bottom, then you add that guitar part, just kind of weird arpeggios, and then put the bass in, and the bass is just kind of sliding between the G and the D. Between the three of them, they coalesce around this strange but compelling beat. plays an important role here as well. It's a little bit faster than feels comfortable. I clock it at around 102 beats per minute, and it just kind of has this robotic feeling to it. Uh, you can actually watch Devo play this cover live in 1977, and they played it live before they recorded it with a much slower tempo. They're closer to 80 beats per minute, and that really changes the song's energy. It's a much more kind of grinding groove. I think that the change to a faster tempo really serves the song well. I can see why they made that decision. Be, 
So then we're left with Mark Mothersbaugh's vocals, and that's really the thing that ties this whole thing together. That's the defining musical aspect of this recording. Mark Mothersbaugh started his musical career as one of the lead singers of Devo, along with Gerald Casal, though some listeners out there may know him more for his career as a film scorer. He wrote scores for a bunch of Wes Anderson movies. More recently, he wrote the score for Thor Ragnarok. I think he's also doing the upcoming Thor movie. He actually scores the wonderful TV adaptation of What We Do in the Shadows, which was unexpected. I remember seeing him in the credits for that show and being like, oh, well, I knew I liked the music for this, and now I know why. It's less unexpected when I think about how What We Do in the Shadows was co-created by Taika Waititi, who's also the director of the two most recent Thor movies, so it would appear that they like working with one another. So Mother's Ball is sort of like Danny Elfman in that he was in a sort of a weirdo band back in the 70s or 80s, and then he got into film scoring because he has this kind of distinct musical voice, and you can certainly hear that approach to the way that he sings this cover of Satisfaction. What he's doing here is really clever. He's not really singing a melody. He's kind of just yelping out this one note. He's certainly nothing close to the melody that Mick Jagger sang all those years ago. I mean, Mick really paced it. He sang this very cool melody that's really distinct. And I mean, everybody sings along with when they sing this song. really a pretty clear melody. I mean, two phrases of three notes a piece that move in a very clear way. It's a distinct thing. I can't get no satisfaction. I mean, that satisfaction, that's the song. That's a pretty far cry from this. Based in part on how Mother's Ball describes coming up with this, in part on just listening to it, I get the sense that he kind of rhythmically freestyled how he wanted to sing these lyrics, just sort of hollering them out until he found where he wanted them to sit. And he's always placing his emphasis and putting his phrases in a place that it makes them sound like he's singing in a different time signature than the rest of the band. Like, let's just count it. This is where I hear the timing. It's one, two, three, four. One, two, three, four. But you really gotta listen before you can get comfortable with how Mother's Ball is rhythmically phrasing. Once you do get comfortable, there's a peculiar sort of a logic to it. It starts to make musical sense, or at least it has for me the more I've listened to it. And really beyond that weird logic that it has, it's just funny. I mean, Devo's a funny band. This cover is really funny. I can imagine people seeing this late night on MTV on this new music video TV channel and thinking, who are these guys wearing their weird orange jumpsuits, just kind of rejecting the entire rock star lifestyle and playing this completely bizarre version of one of the ultimate rock star songs by one of the ultimate rock star bands. They're taking it apart, they're turning it into something ridiculous, and yet they're doing it somehow without disrespecting the original. I mean, like, later in the song, this happens. (laughs) 
It really rules, and it does stay true to the Stones' original, particularly in the most important way. It stays true to the lyrics. In fact, it kind of elevates the lyrics, because I've never really thought about the lyrics of Satisfaction, because I couldn't always understand what Mick was saying. But I can very clearly understand what Mark is singing when he sings this cover, and it actually really elevates the song for me. It has really cool lyrics. Mothersbaugh totally gets it. He explained to The New Yorker his understanding of the lyrics and why he saw Satisfaction's social critique as dovetailing beautifully with what Devo was using their art to say more than a decade later. I think those are some of the most amazing lyrics that were ever written in rock and roll, Mother's Boss said, dealing with conspicuous consumption and the stupidity of capitalism and sexual frustration all in one song. It pretty much encapsulated what was going on with the kids at that time, much more than any of the hippie songs, as far as I was concerned. So Devo managed a remarkable feat. By devolving a rock and roll classic, they wound up reframing it, amplifying its social critique, and laser-focusing its message for a new generation of TV-addled weirdos. So Devo found new life in a classic song by devolving it, by removing so many of the musical elements that had defined the original. The next two covers we're going to talk about both take that idea a step further, completely stripping down the original recording until there's almost nothing left in the process, revealing the beauty at the core of the song while arguably becoming the song's definitive recording. The first cover has a bit more of a story behind it. It comes to us courtesy not of an album, but of a movie, and it's a recording that I didn't even know was a cover until many years after I first heard it. I'm talking, of course, about Michael Andrews and Gary Jules' 2001 cover of Tears for Fears' 1983 song, Mad World. All around me are familiar faces, worn out places, worn out faces, bright and early for their daily races, going nowhere, going This cover was featured during the climactic final sequence of Richard Kelly's 2001 film Donnie Darko, and I'm gonna say that I think that it single-handedly elevated the movie. I like that movie, but this this recording is one of the things that is most memorable about it. It's so beautiful, and I think that it's a big part of why people loved that movie so much. Michael Andrews, who played piano on the recording, also composed the film's score, and he brought in singer-songwriter Gary Jules to sing. They quickly knocked out their recording, it was very laid-back recording session, and in the process they gave a classic song an entirely new life. I find it hard to tell you, I find it hard to take. When people run in circles, it's a very, very mad I mentioned that I wasn't actually aware that this was a cover when I first heard it. I also wasn't aware that it had been recorded specifically for Donnie Darko's soundtrack. But anyone who's listening to new wave music in the early 1980s doubtless recognized it and was aware of the original. It was written by Roland Orzabal for his band Tears for Fears, released in 1983 on their debut album. And that version is great, but it's really, really different from the version that I first encountered in 2001. It's the 
same melody, it's some of the same parts, but it's got this groove. It's got layers of synths, guitar, and percussion, and it's led by Tears for Fears bassist Kurt Smith's muscular vocal performance. I love this cover because it's such an act of miraculous musical excavation. It's such a great credit to Michael Anders that he saw the song within the song, that he identified just how well the basics of Mad World held together and how magic they might sound if you removed so many of the supports and chipped away the layers and left only the faintest outline of the original, if you took something strong and made it delicate and in the process brought out the heart of the song, that haunting melody and those haunted lyrics. Children waiting for the day they feel good Happy birthday, happy because the Andrews Jules version is so stripped down, every element is crucially important. There are only like four musical elements on this entire recording, so each one plays a pivotal role. For starters, there's Andrews piano. I'm not sure what specific kind of piano this is, but he's definitely got the cover closed, and he's got this very muted sound which sets the mood from the very beginning of the recording. You can also really hear the instrument in a lot of different ways. You can't always hear the piano, you know, obviously you can hear the notes, but you can't always hear the mechanism, but you can hear in this recording Andrew's moving as he plays. You can hear some of the ambient sound from the studio. You can hear his feet on the pedals. It's casual and intimate in a way that really works and sets the mood for this song. So when I say the piano is closed, piano is really a percussion instrument, right? Inside of the piano body, there's a bunch of metal strings. The piano keys cause little hammers inside of the body to hit those strings. So if you've ever played around with an acoustic piano, you know that if you open the lid, you get a much brighter and a much louder sound because the strings are right there. They're ringing out. They're often reflecting off of the piano lid and outward. If you've seen a grand piano with the lid up, it's usually turned so the lid is kind of reflecting outward toward the audience. The whole thing is designed to make the piano brighter and with a more powerful attack to help it carry, usually above an ensemble. If you close the lid, you lose a lot of that high end and that resonance, and you can often get a much more muted sound. Now I don't have an acoustic piano, and there is a chance that he's just playing maybe an upright piano with some kind of cloth over it or something, but I think that it's it's an open-closed kind of a thing. So let me just demonstrate what I'm talking about. This is uh, my sampler, which can do an open or closed lid. Here is an open lid playing Andrews's piano part. And here it is with a closed lid. Now the piano sets the mood, but it's Gary Jules' voice that seals it. His delicate, vulnerable delivery is what makes this whole thing work. All around me are familiar faces, worn out places, worn out faces. He's singing in this nice, light, low mix. All around me are familiar faces. So they're down in F minor, a half step below the original F sharp, basically in the same vocal register for both male singers, but Jules' delivery is such a contrast with Kurt Smith's performance on the original. All around me are familiar faces, worn out places, worn 
Smith has a lovely voice. He's a great singer. It's really clear. He's not blasting or anything. He's just, he's in this nice place, but he's just singing much more smoothly, much more clearly and confidently than Jules's more introspective and kind of wavering, slightly more hesitant take. Bright and early for the daily races Going nowhere, going nowhere The stripped-down nature of the Andrews Jewels cover lets the song's biggest strengths show through. The lyrics, which are beautiful, and we'll talk about them in a second, but also the interplay between the harmony and the melody, and that's all Orzabal. Really, it's all Orzabal. His melody, his lyrics, the chords, they're all just great, and you can really focus on those three aspects of the song in the Donnie Darko version. The tears are filling up their glasses no expression, no expression. If you listen closely, especially with headphones, you'll hear another subtle studio trick going on. They're doubling Jules's vocals. There's a second track faintly playing behind the lead track. I think it's a second take that he recorded separately, though it might be some kind of chorus or echo effect. Listen for it. It's like the voice of a ghost haunting the vocal lead. In my head, I want to drown my sorrow. No tomorrow. No tomorrow. You hear it? And I find it kind of funny. I find it kind of sad. The dreams in which I'm dying are the best I've ever had. I find it hard to tell you. I mentioned that this version is in F minor, and the heart of this song is in this cycling revolution between two chords. F minor, the one, and B flat major, the four. So one minor to four major. The intro just goes back and forth between those two chords, F minor to B flat major. Now often in a minor key, the four chord will also be minor. So in this case, it would be F minor to B flat minor. And that's a very different sound if you go back and forth between the F minor and B flat minor, though that's in keeping with the kind of Western European definition of a minor key, which has a flat sixth. In F minor, when you play a B flat major, you get a D as the third of that B flat major chord, and that's the major sixth in the key of F minor. So an F minor chord with a major sixth, hmm, minor with a major sixth. If you've really been paying attention to strong songs and taking lots of notes, or you just took music theory, you already know some theory, you'll remember that a minor scale with a major sixth is usually a form of Dorian minor, which is a specific kind of minor with a specific kind of sound. It's the same scale that the entirety of Miles Davis's So What is built out of, so I talked a lot about Dorian on that episode, that major sixth on a minor tonality, it's this hint of brightness that just has a very distinct sound. You've heard it a lot of places, and in particular, in this recording, when they go from F minor up to B flat major, that major third in B flat is the major sixth in F minor, and it's at the heart of this song, is that D natural. It's in the piano line at the very beginning, it kind of walks up, and then it walks down, and it resolves to a D natural. It's also in the melody during the pre-chorus when he sings, I find it hard to tell you. That's a D to a B flat. I find it hard to tell you. I find it hard to take. When people run in circles, it's a very, very mad world. So that whole pre-chorus and also this whole chorus, it's just F minor to B flat, two chords. The verse, however, introduces some new chords. Two specifically, the verse goes on a four chord chord progression. It starts on F minor, then it goes up to A flat major, then down to E flat major, and then to B flat major. So it's a one, then the relative major, 
then the five of the relative major, and then the four major. So it's actually all major chords except for that first chord, which goes to show how powerful the tonic can be if you really establish yourself in a minor key. It's a nice chord progression and it makes space for that lovely verse melody. Now all these things that I've been highlighting, the chords, the melody, the lyrics, they were all present in the original, it's just wild how totally different they sound when they're presented so starkly and with so much space. And I'd say that stark presentation, all that space, it makes it possible for this song's beautiful lyrics to finally really land. I mean, the first line from the pre-chorus on the song has got to be in the pantheon for the most evocative lyrics ever written. I find it kind of funny, I find it kind of sad, the dreams in which I'm dying are the best I've ever had. I mean, come on, that rules, that is an incredible lyric, and it's still an incredible lyric in the original, but at that faster tempo and with that busier arrangement, it just kind of passes you by. In the Andrews Jewels cover, just speaking for the way that it hits me, it just has more space and it just really lands for me. I can really feel what he's saying. And I find it kind of funny, I find it kind of sad. Dreams in which I'm dying are the best I've ever had. I mean, we're just right there with him, and he is actually telling us something. When people run in circles, it's a very, very mad That chorus lands like a ton of bricks, and it's just two notes. Mad world. It's just an A flat and an F, offset by a little piano line, and both of those things were also present in the original recording. There's some other cool specific stuff I want to at least mention. I love how they use this reverbed vocoder sound on the song's chorus to give this ethereal echo to Jules's singing. It's a very, very mad mad the way they use a Mellotron cello on the second verse to fill out the sound. Children waiting for the day they I'm not sure any lyric makes me sadder than that happy birthday lyric. It's an incredible cover and it fulfilled its purpose with room to spare. It fits beautifully into the sequence of the film. If you haven't seen Donnie Darko, it's a really cool movie and worth watching. And this is just such a perfect capper for that mysterious film. It takes this great original song and distills it down so far that all you're really left with is the raw materials that Roland Orzabal started with back in the early 80s. Dreams in which I'm dying are the best I've ever had. 
Now this cover and the next one that I want to talk about both highlight something that I do want to mention when it comes to covers or what we think of as covers, you know, with the air quotes, because I'm being a bit narrow here. Covers are a very specific idea that people have a very specific idea about thanks to the idea of, you know, recorded royalties and people putting out cover singles and cover albums and cover bands. We think of covers in terms of especially popular music in this certain way, but as long as there's been music, musicians have been reinterpreting one another's work, and often a song will find its truest sound through the voice or instrument of someone other than the person who wrote it. That's been super true of every kind of music well before recorded music even existed. It's true of countless jazz standards, folk songs, Tin Pan Alley tunes. It's a much bigger concept than the purview of this episode, but it is something to keep in mind. This is a tradition as old as music itself, it's just that the recorded cover is still fairly new. Taken alongside all of music history, it's actually pretty common that one person will write a song and it won't be until many years later that another artist finds a way to perform it that brings it to life in some certain way or unlocks some quality that was already there but hadn't quite been brought to the surface yet. And that's certainly true of what Michael Andrews and Gary Jules did for a song that Roland Orzabal had written 20 years prior. So what if we take that distillation, that minimalist approach, to its next level? What if we strip things down even further to a single singer accompanying himself on a single instrument with no vocoders, no mellotrons to get in the way, just a vocal microphone, a guitar amp, and a couple of reverb plates as he looks straight into the heart of a song and perfects it? Come on, you didn't think I could make an entire episode dedicated to covers without talking about Jeff Buckley's masterful cover of Leonard Cohen's Hallelujah. Well, I heard there was a secret chord that David played and it pleased the Lord, but you don't really care for music, do you? Buckley's cover of Cohen's 1984 song is incredible, but it's overplayed and emulated to the point where it's actually kind of hard to keep an objective ear when listening to him perform it. Since Buckley recorded the song, it's been covered by hundreds of different people, amazing recording artists, and also it's been plucked and strummed by countless thirsty college students playing at profundity on the dorm room floor. It's so simple, this performance and this recording, that it almost defies analysis. Like, I guess I could do a guitar lesson on how to play some of the figures that he's playing. Someone who's a better singer than I am could do a voice lesson on his vocal technique. But really, the thing about this cover is how a genius performer like Jeff Buckley can take the raw materials of a song and make it his own, despite the fact that the original recording is very, very different than how he wound up performing it. Now I've heard there was a secret chord that David played and it pleased the Lord, but you don't really care for music, do you? Cohen's delivery is just the polar opposite of Buckley's in every possible way. He's singing literally an octave lower in this deep bass baritone voice. It feels a little bit arch, almost like he's kind of kidding. And it also sounds like he's just talking, which is setting up a contrast with the choir that comes in when it's finally time to sing Hallelujah. Thank you. 
lot of people's first introduction to this song was likely the Buckley version, not just because it was featured on Grace, but because Buckley's version was used in a ton of TV shows and movies throughout the 90s and 2000s. I mean, it was just everywhere to the point where people got sick of it. I think I even kind of got sick of it, which I love this recording, and so that's kind of saying something. And it's pretty jarring listening to Leonard Cohen's original if you're used to that Buckley version, but I really like the Leonard Cohen original. I've been listening to it a lot as I worked on this episode, and I like the way that he envisioned the song. It's this whole other thing. It has a whole other energy. But that actually speaks to the versatility, the malleability of the song. Hallelujah has been covered by so many different artists. Each individual is able to say something slightly different with the way that they perform it. I've heard there was a secret chord that David played and pleased the Lord. But you don't really Now, Buckley wasn't the first person to do a solo cover of Hallelujah. This is singer John Cale performing the song, which he recorded in 1991. Cale was arguably the one who did the necessary stripping down of the song, showing that a more singerly, small-scale performance revealed Hallelujah's innate power. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. So when Buckley recorded the song a few years later, he took a similar approach. He just set up in the studio, he had his Telecaster, a Fender amp, and a vocal mic, and he just recorded the thing. Well, I heard there was a secret chord that David played and it pleased the Lord, but you don't really care for music. Now, while a lot of the covers that we've talked about on this episode have been done in different keys, the wild thing is that all three of those versions are in the same key. They're all in the key of C, which goes to show how different, different vocalists can approach a melody in the same key. Well, I heard there was a secret chord that David played and it pleased the Lord. But you don't really care for music, do you? Now, of course, one big difference is that Cale and Buckley are both singing up the octave from Cohen. Cohen is way down in the basement. He's singing lower than I could even try to sing. But stylistically and technically, Cale and Buckley, they're singing the same notes, but they're approaching their singing completely differently. Cale is kind of belting. He's got this strong, robust way of singing. Buckley, however, he's doing his Buckley thing. He's sitting right in that amazing mix of his. He's sort of adding and releasing pressure throughout his range. He's got a vocal delivery that feels like at any time it could just effortlessly fly into the heavens. Hallelujah! 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 One other interesting thing about Hallelujah is that there are a lot of lyrics to this song. There are a lot of verses that not everyone sings, and that's one more thing that opens it up to different interpretations. Cohen wrote a whole lot of different lyrics that he didn't initially record, and subsequent versions of the song have included them in different arrangements, which helps performers find the tone that they want to hit with the song. Now, over time, a kind of canon version of Hallelujah has crystallized. It's usually the same verses that Buckley sang in the same order. There's the bit about tying you to the kitchen chair and cutting your hair. There's the part about the holy dove. 
love moving too, and the part about how all I've ever learned from love is how to shoot somebody who outdrew ya. But if you listen to the Cohen original, you'll hear all kinds of other lyrics like this one. You say I took the name in vain. I don't even know the name. But if I did, well, really, what's it to you? Even though most people base their performance on Buckley's version, there are so many great interpretations of this song. There's the pentatonics a cappella version. There's Katie Lang's version. And of course, there's Rufus Wainwright's version. Each of those versions is great in its own way, and each owes a lot to Jeff Buckley. Some of what makes Buckley's version stand so tall actually isn't the singing at all, it's the accompaniment, which is just as noteworthy to me as the vocal performance. I did a whole episode about Jeff Buckley, I've talked at length about him, which is why I'm comfortable just dedicating a chunk of this episode to this incredible recording. Um, his guitar playing, though, and this is something I went into on the episode about Last Goodbye, his guitar playing is actually an underrated part of his whole deal. People think of Jeff Buckley and they think of that amazing voice, which of course they do. Jeff Buckley has one of the most beautiful voices ever recorded, but he was a really good guitar player and a really interestingly good guitar player. He wasn't a shredder, he didn't play you know, like really obviously technical stuff, but he was a beautiful player. And I mean, the guitar part that he played underneath his vocals is just as beautiful as the notes that he was singing. Like this guitar interlude that he plays, as far as I can tell, this was just one take that he kind of just knocked out. So Buckley is playing his guitar with the capo up on the 5th fret, that basically just makes the neck smaller, makes the whole guitar smaller, so he can play G major fingerings and get a C major sound. The Telecaster has that signature chimey, harp-like sound, especially when it's played with your fingers with no drive on the guitar. He's playing the whole thing up a 4th from where you'd play it if it were down in G, so the whole guitar just kind of sounds higher. They've also put this lovely reverb on the guitar. It all enhances the celestial quality of this recording. That tuning and capo placement lets Buckley do this nice walk down and then back up between C major and the relative minor, A minor, and Hallelujah spends a lot of time just doing that, just going back and forth between major and minor, C major, then down to A minor, then back up to C major, then down to A minor. Well, I heard there was a secret chord The David played and it pleased the Lord But you don't really Hallelujah is also the rare song where the lyrics teach you the chord changes. 
Well, it goes like this: the fourth, the fifth, the minor fall, and the major lift. The baffled king composing hallelujah, hallelujah. I love how Buckley performs that bit and how he's arranged it for the guitar. And yeah, it's worth noting that the chords are indeed the chords of the song. We're in C major, and it goes like this: the fourth F major, then the fifth G major. Then a minor fall to A minor, and a major lift, raising the E up to an F to make an F major chord. As the baffled king composes Hallelujah, he doesn't note that it goes to the five in root position and then the five of six in first inversion, but I guess that's a little bit harder to find a rhyme for. That's the thing about this recording, about this performance. When it's not performing harmonic analysis on itself, it's actually hard to go too deep into it because it's so pure. The song is what it is. It's a straightforward and beautiful song, and it's transformed into something unique thanks to Buckley's guitar playing and to his voice in that uncanny way he can transform his singing from angelic and soaring to lashing, emotional and almost violent. Buckley's delivery of Cohen's lyrics tells a story all its own. And it's not a cry that you hear at night It's not somebody who's seen the light It's a cold and it's a broken hallelujah And that's the thing with this cover and why I chose to put it last in this episode. In many ways, Jeff Buckley's cover of Hallelujah is a perfect distillation of what a cover can be. A single singer, a single instrument, and a laser focus on the song. The harmonies, the melody, the lyrics, all taken from one artist and channeled through the singular prism of another artist, lifted by that distinct energy that comes when one person's words are projected with another person's voice. Hallelujah! Hallelujah! So by the time Jeff Buckley reaches the end of the song and he lifts into one final, seemingly endlessly held note, the spell has been cast. What can we do but listen, breaths held, waiting for him to come back to earth? That'll do it for Strong Covers Volume 1, the first in what I'm sure will be a series as I return from time to time to talk about more cover recordings and do more comparisons. So if there's a cover that you're thinking, wait, this is an essential cover, I can't believe you didn't talk about it on this episode, believe me, it's probably on my list and I'll get to it. 
Thank you all so much, as always, for listening. I hope you've been enjoying Strong Songs Year 3, and if you have been enjoying it, I hope that you'll consider heading over to patreon.com slash strongsongs to help me continue making this show. A quick programming note, I'm going to be taking a bit of a break during the month of July. I love making Strong Songs, but if you've ever made anything, you know how important it is to take breaks, and I'm really trying to not burn out on making this show since I do everything myself. It's super easy to let that happen. I've seen it happen to all kinds of people who do similar work. I'm really trying to keep this thing sustainable, so I'm going to be taking July off from making new episodes. However, I am still going to run two episodes in July spots, and they'll be new. They're going to be interviews with two very cool interview subjects, and I am pretty excited for you all to hear them. In the meantime, those of you who are new, and I know there's a lot of new listeners out there, I hope that you enjoy taking the opportunity to catch up on the backlog. And those of you who've been here from the start, well, thanks for being here from the start. And, you know, you can go through the backlog, too, if you want. I know not everyone listening to this is as able to go out and see live music as they might want, but if you're lucky enough to be vaccinated and to have live events starting to take place around you, I hope that you'll go and see shows and support musicians, because this stuff doesn't happen in a vacuum. Musicians need an audience. Music is born of community, and that's something we're all a part of. This episode's outro soloist is Bay Area accordionist Rob Reich, so stick around for Rob, have a great July, and I'll be back before you know it with more Strong Songs. Strong Songs